What do we hope for in space travel and in astrobiology? What is so important about life here that we continue to look for it and hope to spread it throughout the galaxy? I'm Lucas Mix, and this is Space on the Page, from the Kluge Center at the Library of Congress. This podcast explores outer space and the place of life in literature, in science, and in the human imagination. I succeed David Barron as the Bloomberg Chair in Astrobiology. Currently, my research focuses on the history of up and down, higher and lower forms of life, and how we talk about journeys into the heavens. It looks at the complex relationship between science, fiction, and philosophy that shapes our imagination and in turn shapes the way we talk about life in space. For the next three episodes, we will be listening in on conversations between scientists and science fiction writers on precisely this topic. In this episode, author Becky Chambers and astrobiologist Rika Anderson talk about the role of curiosity, community, and care as we search for life in space. Hi, I'm Becky Chambers. I am a science fiction author. I am best known for my Hugo Award-winning Wayfarer series, the most recent of which is The Galaxy and the Ground Within. My latest work is a new novella entitled A Psalm for the Wild Built. It's the first of my monk and robot books. I am based in Northern California, and I'm very happy to be here. Wonderful. I can only say from my own experience that I have loved all of Becky's books that I have read. I think they they not only capture the science well, but they capture the ethos of astrobiology, uh, which is really important to me. And I am a big fan. Becky, I wanted to ask you, I understand both of your parents have worked in space-related fields. Can you say something about astrobiology and the impact it's had on your own life and work? Absolutely. So um, my dad, he's retired now, but he was uh, an aerospace engineer. Uh, My mom is an astrobiology educator, uh, and she is uh, one of my biggest inspirations in in my work and just my worldview as well. I don't have any formal STEM training, uh, but I've absorbed a lot through her um, over the years. It was it was hard to not growing up in that environment, both in terms of just getting access to the raw data and and the research that's out there but also in terms of of opening my eyes to the the wonder of the universe and the beauty of it and uh especially the beauty of the unknown the things we haven't discovered yet all of that is is something i learned from my mom very cool hi i'm rika anderson i'm an assistant professor at carleton college in northfield minnesota Um, i am an astrobiologist and an oceanographer I spend most of my time peering into the genomes of microbes um, to try to understand what memories we can uncover from those genomes, whether it be from the recent past, from microbes that live at the bottom of the ocean, to the distant past microbes that lived on the early Earth billions of years ago. And I work with my students to try to understand how microbes have evolved on this planet um, with the hope that we can help understand how microbes might be evolving on other planets if they're out there. I will add that Rika recently received an NSF Early Career Development Award to include students in deep sea vent research, and she is a Sciolog Fellow researching questions related to the search for life beyond Earth. 
I have known Rika for some time now and deeply enjoy my conversations with her. Rika, I know you've given a lot of thought to the relationship between astrobiology and the humanities. Can you say something about how you see astrobiology informing the way we see ourselves as individuals and as humans living in a very large universe? <laughs> well, that's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> um, well, I think astrobiology really asks the, the deepest questions that humanity can ask itself. We're trying to understand who we are, where we come from, and whether we're alone in this universe. And that's what really attracted me to the field in the first place. And we can't get there. We can't really wrestle with these scientific questions unless we bring in the humanities. If We, we have to be able to understand our own history as humans. We have to be able to put together the science that we're doing with the philosophy and the sociology and the arts to really put everything that we're learning about ourselves and the universe in context. Uh, so, um, Becky, I was rereading um, To Be Taught If Fortunate this morning in between um, caring for my newborn. And um, there was a line in there about how questioning how can we think about astrobiology? How can we think about exploring the cosmos when we have so many problems here at home? I think you particularly were talking about the rising seas and um, all of the impacts of climate change on our planet. And you were envisioning how this could play forward into the future. And you were grappling with that question of, you know, how do we balance these two with each other? And this is something that I talk to my students about a lot as well. Um, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts when somebody asks you, you know, how is it that we can spend so much money and thought on looking beyond our own earth when we have so many problems here? How do you, how do you think about that? Absolutely. That question was is actually something that that drives a lot of my work in general. The first time somebody asked it of me, I was in college. And growing up in the family that I did, I really took space exploration for granted. You know, um, growing up as a kid with with my folks doing that, you know, space is just what people do. Everybody cares about this, right? Obviously. But I had a friend in, in college and I was, I don't know what I was talking about, but, you know, this, that or the other, I've always been, been very uh, excitable when it comes to space. And she looked at me very seriously and asked that question because to her, it was this, this frivolous thing. It threw me, but in a really good way, because I think that is a question we should always be asking whenever we discuss space exploration or space science. For me, from where I sit now, and it's you know, the same place I was in when I wrote To Be Taught, I don't see these things as a zero-sum game. I do not see that we have to pick one or the other that we can either study out there or fix down here. You know, that's just a matter of will and what we are willing to, to fund and put our efforts toward. I think that space science has brought just an enormous amount of good <laughs> to, to the planet. We wouldn't understand the full scale of the problems we have down here if we weren't looking out there and we can't, deal with things like climate change if we're only working with a, a sample size of one being our own planet. We have to look elsewhere. I mean, there's, a, there's a, a dozen other reasons I could go off on about why it's important that we do this. Um, but in terms of, you know, laying it alongside, you know, why do this when we could be doing this? Well, why not do both? Yeah, when I talk to my students about this, I often play for them the piece um, Whitey on the Moon by Gil Scott Heron. Um, for those who aren't familiar with that, it's a it's a brilliant piece written by a singer-songwriter in the 1960s, I believe. Um, and I 
people should just look it up and listen to it. But one of the lines is, a rat done bit my sister Nell, but Whitey's on the moon. And it's very much this piece about, you know, how this question, right? How do we reconcile at the time it was the Apollo moon landings and all of the, the space race that NASA was doing? And how do we reconcile that with the civil rights movement that was very much at its peak at around the same time? And um, a lot of my students had no idea that those two things were happening in tandem and very much interacting with each other. And what we often discuss is the fact that his line is, a rat done bit my sister Nell, but Whitey's on the moon. And so what we're really pointing to is the fact that at that time, our ability to explore the cosmos was very much restricted to the privileged, at that time often white men, hence the line in the song. And I think what we need to do as people who are interested in exploring the cosmos is realize that the work that we have to do is ensure that any young kid, no matter where she is from, no matter who her parents are, no matter where she's born, who looks up at the stars, should have the ability to ask those fundamental basic questions. And so we need to work to make sure that we are putting the effort into space exploration because that's what makes us human, you know, to ask these fundamental questions. But the ability to do that has to be open to all, right? And that will take some step towards combating the problems we have here on Earth because equity is obviously one of those huge ones that we really need to wrestle with. And so we also often talk about the fact, as I think you had suggested, this is not a zero-sum game. And in fact, in the United States, the budget for NASA is actually minuscule compared to the budget for you know, the military or even things like climate change, although that could be debated. Um, <laughs> so um, that's another thing that we often talk about is it seems like all this money is being put towards astrobiology, but actually it's, it's very little for what I think is a, a large payoff. I think in academia, we have this tendency to be gatekeepers. We will use fancy words, we'll use jargon as a way to prove our own, our own knowledge and the fact that we belong within academia, but then that can push other people away and, and make everything seem sort of opaque. And that's why I so appreciate the work of people like you, because like in To Be Taught a Fortunate, you have such fundamental astrobiological and engineering concepts in there, but they're communicated in a way that everybody can feel included by and is compelling and interesting to everybody. And so I love that, that we can, you know, find ways to bring in other folks, have them feel like they're part of the conversation rather than being told they're not smart enough or feeling like they're excluded in some way. Yeah, I, I, I hugely appreciate that in that this is this is the hill I will die on right within my own field is that um, science fiction has a very similar problem in that there is a, a perception and, and rightly so that science fiction is very niche and difficult to get into. I've encountered a lot of people in my career who are intimidated by science fiction, who have never read it before because they feel like you have to have a background in STEM, especially in, in you know, uh, physics, chemistry, etc. The, you know, and for someone who is not in STEM, they feel like, oh, well, this isn't for me. I can't enjoy these stories. I can't enjoy this kind of future. They feel like it's going to be too hard or that it's it's going to make them feel excluded. It's going to make them feel dumb. And so they won't even touch the, the imaginary versions of this, right? And so um, one of the things I really, really try to do in my work is to make sure that, yeah, there's stuff here for, you know, science fiction veterans who've, you know, been here all along and read a lot of the stuff. I want there to be something for them, but I really want my books to be sort of a gateway for people who haven't been here before. You, you know, I don't care when the last time was you took a science class, maybe it was 10th grade or whatever, you know, but I want you to, even if you don't necessarily want to go read a bunch of research papers afterwards, I just want you to 
feel the wonder of it and understand that, yeah, this is for you too. One of the things that uh, that fascinates me, and this is true both in, in science outreach and in science fiction, is this curious balancing of stuff that we know to be true, or at least think to be true, and speculation. And so I'm curious to hear from both of you, how do you balance this what is with what might be? Rika, do you want to tackle this impossible question first? <laughs> I think science is all about what might be, building upon what we think is, to use the words that Lucas used. Um, because anytime we embark on a new scientific project, anytime we write a grant proposal, we have to use our imagination and ask ourselves, what could be? What don't we know yet? And that's how I often phrase it to my students when I introduce them to a new project. I'll say, well, here's what we do know. Here are some data points that we've collected or here, you know, here's what we here's what we do know about, say, the deep sea, for example, or here's what we do know about the early earth. But there's so many things we don't know. And we we have to be creative and think about the the possibilities of what could be in order to design a good study to really learn more about our own past or to learn more about what lies beyond. The common phrase is we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the bottom of our own oceans. And in increasingly, it's a race against time for those of us who study the deep sea. I'm interested in the deep sea just because I want to know what's down there and I want to know what secrets it can unlock about our own origins and where we come from. But we're racing against mining industries and we're racing against climate change that are slowly destroying the deep sea. And ironically, some of the solutions we've come up with to combat things like climate change, like electric cars, for example, rely on metals that we obtain from the deep sea. So suddenly our attempts to save the deep sea are threatening the deep sea because we have these mining companies coming in and, and wanting to you know, dredge all of these beautiful ecosystems that I'm trying to study to understand where we come from. And the parallels between, you know, exploration of the cosmos and exploration of the deep sea are, it's amazing to me how many parallels there are between those two things and how the tensions that we're wrestling with are, are so common between those two things. One of the most important parts of being human is, is understanding who we are, where we come from, how we fit into this this earth and also the solar system and and like you said the two go hand in hand if we are going to perpetuate humanity save ourselves <laughs> provide ourselves with the resources that we need to do the things that we like to do we need to understand those ecosystems we need to understand our place within the solar system so i think there needs to be a shift like you said and maybe science fiction or better science communication is the way to do that i don't know <laughs> I, I think both. I think you need both fists in the fight, right? And I, I think also uh, something you said um, made me think about how how human centric all of these conversations tend to be, right? Whether it's the material good or the 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 economic good we get from these things on the one hand, right? And then everything you and I have just articulated about you know the most important thing to humanity is you know being able to answer these big questions about ourselves. But I think that you know a colony of of anemones or coral or what have you is important in its own right. It doesn't have to have a benefit to us to be important. We always, always have to be asking ourselves why, you know, why, why do we want to go out there beyond just um, uh, manifest destiny or because it is there? Like, why is it 
that we think it's important to, you know, go put our boots somewhere else. And I say that as someone who is firmly in like, like forever in favor of a, a human presence in space and having people go out there and explore it for ourselves. But yeah, even if there's nothing there, it's still valuable just as an, as a place to be studied and a place to be appreciated. We don't have to strip mine it in order for it to, um, to matter to us. One of my great frustrations, I I have friends who like to say, if we were alone in the universe, it would be such a waste of space. And that just seems like the wrong approach to me. I feel like space can be space. That reminds me of two things. One is the quote by, I think it's Arthur C. Clarke, either we're alone in the universe or we're not. And both of those thoughts were equally terrifying (laughs) or exciting, you know, (laughs) but I think it reminds me of this conversation I often have with my students about life and um, how we define life and whether we place some sort of intrinsic value in life itself. Because we actually, what my students do is we read a paper by Lucas on the definition of life. (laughs) Um, And we tie ourselves into knots trying to figure out what definition of life we like best, or if if life can even be defined, whether there's even a point to defining life. And what we often come around to is my students will end up with the conversation saying, well, there's no point to defining life. Like this is all very human centric. Life will be life regardless of what we label it as. And then I will, and, or they'll say just, there's no definition to be had. But at the same time, my students have signed up for a class on the origin of life. So therefore they are clearly interested in where this phenomenon that we can't fully define, where does it come from? So we clearly place some intrinsic value in this idea of life. And there's a whole field that I am part of called biology, right? Where we have (laughs) decided that we are interested in whatever this thing is that we call life. And so humans, I think, even if we can't fully define it, we have put intrinsic value or maybe higher intrinsic value on something that we consider to be living than something that we see as a rock. The trouble, of course, is as astrobiologists, if we were to go to Mars and we were to find, say, a crystal that's replicating in a certain way that may be considered to be similar to natural selection, then we run into some difficulties. And that is a whole rabbit hole that I do not need to go down right now. And I know Lucas is wiggling his eyebrows. This is one of his favorite topics. But um but, you know, it's this, it's this difficult question of, you know, what do we value? Why do we value it? And how does that motivate our desire to go out and search for life? I mean, that is the that is the crux of astrobiology, right? We want to find other living things like ourselves. Um, and why, why we value life so much? I guess it's mysterious and that's intriguing to us. I don't know. <laughs> We're, we're, we're constantly looking for, for ourselves. I think we want, we, we want to answer that question of, are we alone? Are we unique? You know? And I, I think, um, the, the thing you, the, the phrasing you just used about, you know, we want to see if there's anything like us out there. I think that's also something we have to be very careful about defining and is, is, kind of impossible to define as well. But I do think it's something that needs to be part of this conversation of how is it that we're, you know, how is it that we're approaching the unknown? How is it that we're going out there? How is it that we're exploring these places? Because if we're just looking for things that are like us in the sense that, um, you know, if you're talking sort of a, a, you know, high level civilization sort of thing, we want something that thinks like us, acts like us, has built a world like us. Uh, We're going to be very disappointed. I'm sometimes struck when listening to either popular science speakers or even my students talking about looking for life beyond earth 
they often say, oh, you know, all we're going to find is a bunch of microbes and that's that's boring. And I just, I'm always struck by that because I would think that's fascinating. That's amazing. I want to learn what those microbes are doing and how are they affecting the planet and how have they shaped the history of that planet. But I forget that not everybody has such a microbe-centric viewpoint <laughs> to the point where this brings me back to something else that was in one of your books, Becky, you know, thinking about when we are going out and exploring other bodies, if we are able to set foot on, say, Enceladus or on an exoplanet beyond our own solar system, we have to think about how to protect what may be on that planet from ourselves, right? This idea of planetary protection is one that um, I and, and many of my colleagues have thought very carefully about. And I loved how, again, and to be taught a fortunate, you had the explorers shifting themselves in order to explore a planet rather than having the planet have to shift to accommodate the humans. I loved that shift in in perspective, right? That, you know, that's how we are. We should explore in a way that is respectful and we change in order to learn from something rather than we go somewhere to extract and change something for our benefit. You know, I really liked that switch in mindset that you had there. Yeah, because I think I think there is just this inherent respect in in, in that approach. And I think that it's something it's something missing from from science fiction at large um, and, and, and real science as well. I think this idea that we are actually guests in this space. This isn't just a playground for us to to, you know, run around in as we please. This this space belongs to something else. And, you know, we, we need to we need to be respectful of that. It's something I care about so deeply that I'm going to talk just to, to reiterate, uh, hopefully, I think there is this common trope that we are going to engineer ourselves to be better and that we we tie our narratives about space with narratives about improving the human race and all of the the dangers inherent uh, in the idea of improving the human race, starting with knowing what constitutes better uh, and ending with questions of, of eugenics and, and tampering with people. One of the things that I, I really appreciated about uh, really, really all of your works, Becky, but uh, particularly the new Monk and Robot books is there's this idea of letting go a little bit of what it means to be like me in order to be in relationship with someone else. And I think that if we can, we can have that approach to astrobiology that is not about taking earth elsewhere, but is about figuring out how to be a guest, like you said, and giving up a little bit of who we are in order to be something more than that together with, with someone else or, or with uh, another biosphere is something I think is incredible. Yeah, I think that letting go is, is the key not only to, um, I mean, I, I hesitate to say the key to doing good science since I don't participate in science myself, but I, I think that's true in storytelling as well. You, you just have to be able to, um, to open yourself up to the possibilities that are out there and to allow yourself to get uncomfortable. Well, and not just to think of it another way, um, not just letting go of your humanity, but also being acutely aware that we are human and we are one specifically adapted species on this planet that is very different and has adapted to our particular conditions and where we live. And like you said, we are just one type of squishy creature on this earth. And there are many other squishy creatures that have adapted in some other way. You're making me think of, you know, the first time I dove in, in Alvin, which is a, a submersible that we take to study the bottom of the ocean. And it's when you're in those extreme spaces 
that you really do come to appreciate your humanity and the vulnerability that comes with it. I am so poorly adapted to live at the bottom of the ocean. I mean, I was in this <laughs> this little submersible that was under this tremendous amount of pressure. I would be squished like an eggshell if I were out outside of a submersible, which I wasn't, thank goodness, um, at the bottom of the ocean. And I'm looking through these windows at these organisms, these these spider crabs and these two worms that are flourishing in this huge amount of pressure in water that's anywhere from two degrees Celsius, Celsius to 200 degrees Celsius, okay, 120, um, and realizing that they are so well adapted to this environment, it's their happy place. And I, as a human, I, I am not at all adapted to live in that environment. I am adapted to live on the surface of the planet where there's plenty of gaseous oxygen for me to breathe. And that vulnerability is humbling, but it's also, I don't know, I just think it's fascinating when you realize that, you know, we humans have evolved to be really well adapted to the environments that we live in. And these spider crabs have evolved to be very well adapted to the environments they live in. And we can learn, we can learn from that, right? And I think that's, I think it's really empowering and inspiring, um, but like you said, also very humbling and sometimes terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I um this is not nearly as cool by far because I'm I'm super jealous of this experience and I could talk to you about it all day. Um but I I keep bees and um I have this feeling every time I open a hive that I don't belong here. I'm keenly aware that I'm entering a space that is not for me and that my behavior has to be as minimally disruptive as possible. I have to understand how they work because I'm entering their home. And antithetically to everything I've said about, you know, uh, things have a value beyond extraction. Of course, I'm going in there to get honey. So I'm a giant hypocrite in that regard. But it's, it, it is that feeling of, of awe almost, you know, even though it's just this little wooden box in my backyard, there's an entire community in there that has nothing to do with me and is fine without me. And that I, I really have to change my clumsy ape behavior around if I'm going to be able to interact with it. I know there are people out there who find difference frightening. I find it to be just the most incredible thing to look at things that are, that, that experience this planet differently than I do. Um, I find to be, uh, there's not there's nothing in the world more more inspiring than that. Yeah, I feel like an intruder who we show up in this big old submarine and come and crash on their home and then shine these bright lights in their eyes you know, and, <laughs> and then pick them up and stick them in boxes and then take them up to the surface where they turn into sludge. You know, it's I feel kind of bad about that sometimes. <laughs> but yes, we're we're very much intruders on on their territory, which and and it could so easily kill us too. So it's humbling, but also sort of says something about the power that we can have to destroy these ecosystems as well. Even if all we're trying to do is learn from them, um, it's something we have to be very careful of as well. And and that's the inherent paradox in it, right? In that, in order to protect these places from our own sort of um, sort of ignorant you know, bumblings around the planet, in order to protect these places, we do have to do some harm we do have to shine the bright lights and we do have to take some things back. And I wish there was a different way to do it, but the the damage we can do if we don't understand those things, if we don't go in with that kind of care and, and um, you know, it really is the lesser, the much lesser of two evils, I think to, um, you know, cause a a little bit of damage or a little bit of discomfort uh, in order to, avoid the tragedy of, of destroying something entirely, you know, simply by not understanding it. I think we could be a lot more mindful in science than we are, but isn't that the, the same as, uh, 
friendship. Yeah. I mean, we, every every time we encounter someone new, we're we're stumbling in, and we have no idea what kind of uh, harm we could cause. Uh, but there's that that openness to creating a new relationship. I imagine it's similar for doctors too, right? They try to do no harm and try to do the best they can to help, but sometimes you can't help but create damage. We just have to give ourselves some grace and hope that we're doing the best we can to try to understand, you know, in my case, understand the world we live on and, and the creatures that live on it. We're getting better at it though. There's a, just as a, a concrete example, there's a, a region off the coast of Canada where there's a bunch of hydrothermal vent systems, and we've realized how destructive our practices can be. I mean, we take Alvin and we stick it on the seafloor to preserve battery, and when we stick it on the seafloor, we're crushing a whole bunch of tube worms and mussels and crabs, and so we've learned that's that's damaging. And so this region off the coast of Canada has almost been designated kind of like an undersea national park, and we're not allowed to stick Alvin on the seafloor there. We have to hover while we're taking our samples. It takes a lot more battery. It's a lot harder. We don't get as much data, but it's a way to acknowledge the damage that we can cause to recognize the value of these ecosystems for what they are um, and try to balance the costs and benefits of learning something, but also preserving it for for, for itself. I was going to say for future generations, but also just for, for its own value, right? We, it, it deserves to be there without our bumbling in and screwing things up. <laughs> you know, it's challenging. I was just going to say it's a challenge for Mars exploration too. Um, some of the areas, particularly around the poles, where we're most excited about the possibility of life, we don't want to land a, a spacecraft there because uh, we don't want to cause damage. I, I hadn't thought to um, to set these two things side by side before, but I'm because they, they seem like extremely different things. But I'm realizing um, it's this. It, there's largely a it's it's very much the same in in storytelling in that we are constantly trying to improve upon the stories that came before us and the stories we've already told in that stories can hurt people and not in a way where it's like oh this story was scary this story made me upset stories can do real damage to people whether you're saying uh, something about a particular group of people that you didn't intend that, um, you know, furthers um, really harmful thinking or, or just causes personal pain, whether it's painting pictures of, of futures that that feed into narratives that are, you know, demonstrably damaging in the real world. These are things we think about in science fiction a lot um, and is a very loud conversation within the field right now of really wrestling with our past in a lot of ways, looking at the the classic stories we all grew up on, which are fueled by things like um, colonialism and racism. And and there there's a lot of problems, especially in space opera um, that we look at. And even though they were these wonderful stories that fueled both, you know, future storytellers and us, there are also things that did a lot of harm. And, and we are trying to do better. And that doesn't mean we've gotten it right yet. I make mistakes in my books all the time. We all do. I will forever. And all we can do is try to tell a better story next time. And that doesn't mean, you know, we have to check off a, a set list of here are all the criteria your story must meet. That's not it at all. It's just really, really taking the time to think about the ideas we're putting out there, the narratives that we're furthering, and who it is that we're helping and who it is that we're harming, and if that's what we actually want to be doing. I think it's it's in some ways, even though these seem like things that considerations that could not be more different, 
it's it's all the same core idea of recognizing that something you may have done that was done for good intentions and that you 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 thought you were doing the right thing may actually have hurt the thing that you wanted to help or understand in the first place. And so it's just a matter of trying to do a little bit better every time. It reminds me of the conversations we're having in science right now. Who gets to be included in the storytelling and who gets to be included in the science, right? And and can can everybody recognize themselves, right? In in the mm-hmm. in whether it be science fiction or in among the scientific community, right? Do, does everybody feel welcome? I think that the thing that makes me most hopeful for science fiction is the fact that the table has opened up to so many voices who were either just marginalized or excluded in the past. I think the fact that we have people from so many different backgrounds and cultures and demographics and fields of study and ways of thinking, telling stories now and and not just in a niche way, in a, in a very, uh, you know, mainstream best-selling sort of way, I think is tremendous. It makes me so excited. I'm so excited to see um, the, the ways in which the genre is changing and continues to change. I'm so excited to see new voices coming in constantly. That is what gives me hope for, for science fiction in the future. Well, thank you both. I have had an amazing time. I hope you have too. Uh, I could not have asked for, for more engaging and, and uh, insightful comments. And so I just want to say thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been fantastic. This is Space on the Page, a podcast from the Kluge Center at the Library of Congress. Our original music was composed and performed by Andrew Briner. In our next episode, we will join astrobiologist Frank Rosenzweig and writer John Scalzi to discuss multicellularity, sociopathic yogurt, and the almost unimaginable possibilities for the future of life. I'm Lucas Mix. See you next time.